Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How does it feel to be a meme again? I'm a long-running meme, I think. But you were a meme this week because of your uh, rather extreme facial expressions. Yeah, well, I mean, it was slightly surprising to have a bunch of sort of half-naked protesters storming into the House of Commons gallery and sort of dancing around because there was something quite carry on it was sort of like carry on parliament wasn't it it really was <laughs> but there was something parliament. carry on especially about your face but that's one of the nicest things you've ever said to me <laughs> uh yes was sort of what's it james-ish but yeah definitely so talk talk me through what happened there i was listening to an excellent speech by peter kyle about the european union and what we should do about brexit and uh suddenly there was this shouting in the gallery and so I l- sort of look round, rather my eyes look discreetly, round, discreetly, and and uh, there are these sort of people taking their clothes off in the gallery. And obviously, Peter Carl's speech was fascinating, but not quite <laughs> as fascinating as that. Uh, he's on regulatory alignment. Uh, now it does seem to me that some of the other MPs at that stage looked away, but you. Well, you I was had the a only one. In, I was the only one in shot, and you know it's so funny because about five minutes earlier. As Peter Carl was beginning his speech, I turned to Yvette Cooper, who was sitting next to me, and said, listen, be really careful because you're going to be on camera. <laughs> I mean, this was before the naked protesters. Uh, um, and she was like, oh, yeah, good point. And so we were listening attentively to his speech. And then it was true, about three quarters of the way through the semi-naked protest, I suddenly thought, hmm, I, I probably am on camera. <laughs> I better pay some attention to, to his speech. But I thought he kept going manfully, Yeah. Uh, uh, manfully well. Now we couldn't hear you, but were you making this noise? Ooh, I that's did, what it looked I, like. I, no, I, I, I wasn't. I was sort of. I, I thought actually it did. They, they were, they were there for some considerable time. I mean, it was, it was. There was something quite positively British about it because the police were not at all heavy-handed. I mean, they were quite the opposite. Uh, and there was sort of a very lumbering clearing of the public gallery. People, they got the people out of the public gallery. You know, then, then the protesters were super some of them were super glued to the screen so then they so i had to try and get them off but they were they glued their buttocks to the screen i think it was their hands actually um and so it was sort of trying to prise off their hands and the police would realize that they you know what there wasn't possible so then they got some squirty thing to prise off their hands so it was quite it was all you know it was sort of done in a very sort of piece somebody somebody had to clean those windows afterwards though didn't they yeah but i think yeah well that's true i mean there's going to be some smearing yeah, it's not nice. Smear, to, not nice. Smear, to think smearing about. issues. I mean, as somebody said to me afterwards, the two conclusions I draw from the press, one of my fellow Labour MPs, Pat McFadden, he said, well, two conclusions. One, Peter Kyle, who was doing the speech, has extraordinary powers of concentration. Two, if you're going to do a naked protest, you should go to the gym first, which I thought was sort of <laughs> had, had a, a, something sort of uh, going for it. And is that the most bare buttocks you've ever seen in one place at the same time? <laughs> 
in the House of Commons, yes, <laughs> definitely. Definitely, and and you know, as uh, we we've done episodes in the in the past about protests and the power of protest. Do do you recommend it as a? No. Is, is it something you would encourage? I would not. Has it no. inspired you to lead your own naked protest at any stage? Definitely not. I you don't want to do a naked have, protest against the iTunes charts. I haven't been to the gym enough. <laughs> well, good, entertaining. What will what will next week hold? Oh my goodness, who knows? Uh, what are we talking about this week then? So we're continuing the process of sort of tiptoeing gingerly into. Brexit issues and we're talking this week about immigration and and there's been quite a remarkable thing which has happened under the radar which is according to a whole number of different opinion polls attitudes to immigration have changed for the better over the last eight years or so and that's kind of continued through the the, the process of the Brexit referendum. It's not what you'd expect. That is so surprising I know to it me. is surprising. So this is an Ipsos Mori poll for the BBC which showed which asked the question, would you say immigration has generally had a positive or negative impact on the UK? Uh, in 2011, it was 64% negative, 19% positive. Today, it's 48% positive, 26% negative. So like a massive transformation. The crossover point was around the time of the EU referendum. And so, you know, that is, I think, definitely a piece of good news. Um, and we'll be sort of talking about some of the reasons for that and what this says about people's views on immigration and how we should be talking about the issue with Sundar Katwala of British Future, which is an organisation that thinks about these issues, and Rosie Carter from Hope Not Hate. Now, they cooperated together uh, on a big uh, national conversation around immigration last year, a big report which involved going all around the country. So we're going to be talking to them about so what lessons we should learn from the, this development and what it means for the future. And we've got a great comedian on this week's episode. I'm excited for you to hear her ideas. It's Athena Kablenyu. So what's your reason to be cheerful? I went to the pictures, which I used to do all the time before my son was born. And, uh, you know, I do it less these days. But it's not just that I got to have a night out that I'm excited about. I went to see the Jordan Peele film, Us. Mm. Do you know about this? No. I mean, he is brilliant. He did this film a couple of years ago called Get Out, um, which was, broadly speaking, a, a horror film. But it was also a commentary on you know, some race issues in America. And his latest film is called Us. And it is so brilliant. I can't recommend it highly enough. Wow, that's pretty yeah. big. That's like double yeah. thumbs up from... Yeah. Mr. Lloyd. So, so is your reason to be cheerful seeing all those buttocks? Nope. It's... Are you going to get into nudism off the back of it? No. Nope. Would you consider a nudist camp? No. Nope. What about coming to see Hair, the musical, with me? No. Nope. So uh, you've not got, got a taste for buttocks? Nope. Uh, never mind the buttocks. Right. Uh, I, my reason to be cheerful is that I was on my I was doing park run on Saturday. <laughs> at the oh, end. I meant to come with you. Yeah. And then somebody came up to me to say and and to say, Oh, I listened to podcast, da 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 da. Uh and that was obviously cheerful making, but they then introduced me to some friends of theirs, all of whom and this person were were involved in an organization called On Purpose. Now, On Purpose is an organization that basically takes people from the city and puts them into organisations to do good instead. So it kidnaps them? <laughs> Not exactly. They choose to, to leave the city. It's, it's a kind of transition out of the city, uh, of City of London, in other words, into social enterprises, other kind of charities, other organisations. They do two six-month placements and then go off and you know, hopefully, I think, have a career in different sector. Oh, that sounds fantastic. It does sound good, yeah. doesn't it? And they're all incredibly nice and incredibly enthusiastic. And... Um, yeah, it was good. And how was your time at Park Run? Mm, not, not the best. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't the best. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So, to talk about changing public attitudes about immigration and what what we should learn and and how we should move forward as a country, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Sundar Katwala, who is director of British Future which is a progressive think tank founded in 2012 that works on issues surrounding cultural identity, integration and migration. And Rosie Carter, who's senior policy officer at Hope Not Hate, which is a group that works to challenge racism and fascism. And she was the co-author of the National Conversation on Immigration Report in the autumn of last year. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Should we just start with the... Um, the sort of facts, and I know the facts are sort of massively disputed, but 
Talk to us about public attitudes to immigration, because as I said in the introduction, there is quite a bit of evidence that public attitudes have been changing over the past few years. Sundar, do you want to start? Yes, there's definitely been a significant shift in how we think about immigration and different things have changed. It's a much lower priority for people that over the last few years, it's always been in the top three against the economy uh, and the NHS. And depending on what's on the, the news, it will be top or second or third. It's, it's fifth right now. It's behind Brexit. Obviously, it's behind, well behind the economy and the health service. It's behind crime as well. And so, it's, and so it's really dropped in salience. And at the same time, attitudes towards it have softened. They've warmed up among some people and they've calmed down among other people. So there's still a big mix of attitudes by class, by place, by education. But, but the whole thing has just got a lot less priority. So it's quite an interesting paradox, really, that the whole country feels so polarised about Brexit um, and so into tribes about that and that we had that referendum because of immigration, that immigration was at the heart of it and that on immigration it's calmed down a great deal while it's much more polarised about everything else. But maybe part of that is because we, we tend to gauge people's opinions by what we see online and there's, there's a very interesting graph about just that. So we, we found a Rosie, you know, got right round the country to 60 towns and cities and talked to people in the real world. But we also uh, polled people representatively. And the first question we asked everybody everywhere was give us a one to 10 score on immigration. Where are you? And the most popular score in this country is five. Well, you know, six in London, six in Scotland, six among ethnic minorities, you know, six or seven if you're Labour and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, but most people are somewhere in the middle. But we also had an online survey that was open for everybody in the whole year we were doing this, the Home Affairs Select Committee. It was like, everyone, come and have your view. And most respondents online were 10 out of 10 or 1 out of 10. So that those two polls which make up... Oh, we should all move off Twitter, each. I think, is so the conclusion. So if you, if you think draw. Twitter is Britain and you're an MP yeah. and you're watching it and you're the media that are watching it, then you're like, this is so polarised. I mean, these people will never agree on anything. And nobody with balanced views then wants to take part online. Is that um, because sort of people are nutty online or is it because people are less likely to be honest in a, in a face-to-face interview? I mean, there's a lot of ambivalence as well. So most people aren't going to talk about immigration online because they don't care enough about it, quite frankly. Um, so you do end up just with people kind of shouting at either end who have the most extreme views. Um, Rosie, you went around the country and talked to people for this report, do you detect the change in attitudes that the polling suggests? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason we wanted to do it was to better understand what is happening in that middle bit and to really listen a bit more beyond either extreme. Um, so what we did was we travelled, I think, 16,000 miles, I make it just over. Um, so we went to 60 different places from Shetland to Penzance, uh, every kind of region and nation. Uh, and in each place, we held a group, a meeting with normal people to hear what they want, they kind of thought about immigration. Um, and I think what was striking was that those opinions were incredibly nuanced, um, but also they were quite based on the local context. So people had this kind of national view of immigration. They talked about control. They talked about contribution. Uh, crucially, they talked about fairness, having a system that's fair both to migrants and to local communities. Um, but really what they did with that opinion was it, it kind of came through a local lens. So people talked specifically about immigration through local issues. So, for example, in Chesterfield, uh, where Sports Direct is based, uh, which is not renowned as a great employer, um, they kind of put a big warehouse there. That's a lot, lot of migrants working there. Um, there people talked a lot about concerns about employment, um, but they also talked about um, migrants kind of moving into unregulated rental housing and the pressures that that was causing. So when people talk about immigration in their local context, they're often kind of talking about one or two streets where there are issues, where there isn't the infrastructure to cope for big new populations um, and things do get a bit tense. So it was always framed through that through that lens. Um, so in port cities, people were more used to people coming and going and opinions were quite different there. So it really kind of depended where you were to what it was that people were talking about. Now, th- there have been different um, reasons put forward or there are some reasons you might think for the change, the overall change in attitudes that there might have been. And three in particular have been suggested. One, that Brexit sort of quote unquote sorts the issue of immigration. Uh, so people are going to be less concerned about it. 
Secondly, that Brexit has highlighted the positive contribution that people coming to this country make because people are much more aware of skill shortages in different sectors and so on that might be caused by uh, Brexit. And thirdly, that it's always the case that when you have a wave of immigration, there might be public concern. But as people get get to know people who've come here, attitudes become more positive. Do either of you want to talk about what combination of those things it might be? I think that those are all true, um, and because it's worth remembering that different people have changed their minds for different for different reasons. And, and one of the piece of work that Ipsos Mori have done is they're in the eighth wave, where the same people are following the same the people, yeah, since since 2015 through the referendum, as they're actually able to go back and ask the people who've moved. Um, by the way if you've changed your mind, why have you changed your mind? And they get uh, an even balance, actually, of, often of what you might call reassurance and regret. And that makes quite a lot of sense. What do you I'm mean by reassurance and regret? So reassurance, I'm expecting some control now. I've yeah. made my point, which is often combined with, so let's do it sensibly, because I've made my point, but I think doctors and nurses are good and houses are yeah. good buildings. That's your reassurance. And so you know, Michael Gover said that's about it. You give people control yeah. and you get softer attitudes. And there's regret, which is uh, just as many people saying, I'm more aware of the positives than I, than I was. And if you, think about, if you think about the immigration statistics, they're the statistics. But, you know, there's a pressure group that didn't exist called the three million because the Europeans who need your to stay EU in this citizens, country have yeah got together and said there are three million of us and so suddenly you think well that's uh, that's someone at the school gate that's uh, that's people who work in the health service or in the coffee shop that's someone i know and there's a face on the story of immigration um and 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 that people you know might think the government's messed up but they're actually quite in favor of people so that's another source of pragmatism also the i'm feeling so much more positive about the country talking to these two i mean doesn't it make you feel much more positive it does but did it make it's always been my local experience in doncaster but i mean it's like you know to listen to the debate it seems so polarized and it's sort of yeah you know yeah i mean don't don't you think and is that the case when you were out talking to people you you would feel more positive Positive about people than perhaps we do from looking at Twitter or the news. Yeah, I think most of the time. I mean, people had these incredibly kind of balanced conversations, and there was no. I think before I started it, I was quite scared that you were going to have these kind of arguments and people would be screaming at each other, and it wasn't like that at all. So, Not at all. So no, I mean, people disagreed on things, but they tended to kind of discuss that. People were very, very happy to listen to other people's opinion. I mean, a lot of people were not really sure about these issues and didn't know where to who to trust or where to find information and actually talking about it they found really really valuable so did did you find because i know this has been a feature of academic work on this that the more people were exposed to immigration the more positive they were which is the opposite often of what people might sort of intuitively think yeah definitely um depending on the circumstances as you said about chesterfield you know but I mean, people, that's where people know migrants and refugees and where people have contact with people, where people might have migrated themselves. People have a better understanding of it and especially the kind of rules around it. People don't always know immigration rules. Um, there's kind of bits of micro policy that are quite complicated on why would you know about it? Um, so there's some things that people don't necessarily know are happening, um, which frames their opinion because they think maybe there's no controls on immigration housing all. allocation is a big issue for example people Huge. have a big when i did some uh um research as part of the shelter housing commission i was doing and we we're talking to people in doncaster and elsewhere people have a perception about the number of people from eastern europe for example in social housing which tends to be much higher than the actual number yeah, definitely. Because you frame everything around what you see. And if what you see is your kid not being able to get their place in school or not being able to see a doctor for a couple of weeks, even things like changing the way that people make their doctor's appointments affected kind of how people saw immigration. And I think when people were talking about immigration, they weren't just talking about immigration. They're talking about housing. They're talking about education. They're talking about their streets. They're talking about kind of neighbourhood decline, all these issues become kind of bundled up. I think we saw something else as well that reflects what academics would tell you to expect, which is where attitudes were very tough and then uh, heading off into the borders of prejudice yeah. um, and so on. Academics talk about halo effect. We didn't find that in very diverse areas. We did find that 15 miles down the road and that while we had very decent and pragmatic conversations, the levels of casual stereotyping and prejudice against Muslims was it was in a different place and that was because people who were policing the, the norms that they've got about racism and that that was very much happening 15 miles away from places of high diversity. That wasn't happening in Bradford or in Birmingham 
or in Tower Hamlets. So you mean because there wasn't a big Muslim, where yeah. the places there wasn't a Muslim, big but, Muslim community, there was more likely to be prejudice. But if, yeah. you're in, if you're in Basildon and Kidderminster, you're looking at the East End of London, you're looking at right. Birmingham, you're saying it's changed a lot. Right. I, don't really, I don't feel comfortable there anymore. We're doing okay around here. I don't know what's right. going on. And in those places, there are good relationships between groups and faiths quite often but that is not felt to be true on the other side of Yorkshire so it isn't good enough to have the contact locally if the people who live in the less diverse areas maybe older people don't also you know through the media which is very important here have a a sense of who are Muslims and what are they like because otherwise they will see things about ISIS things about Rotherham and say well I don't know what that group's doing I'm very afraid now. I think it was also a kind of difference between towns and cities I mean having kind of seen towns where there were significant levels of decline, where industry was lost, where people were in insecure work, they were much more likely to talk about these things than in kind of diverse cities. So I think the kind of changing economic landscape quite often got bound up with kind of migration and and the way that people talked about it. And and the good news uh, on attitudes to immigration, that's not borne out in sort of anti-Muslim sentiment. No, sadly not. Um, so I think what we found was that when people do immigration, they are talking about lots of different types of immigration. Um, but quite often we'd hear prejudice about Muslims and Islam in Britain. Um, people were very, very concerned. People kind of repeated um, news stories that they'd read about nativity plays being banned or Easter eggs being banned. And, I mean, these things are just not true. Um, but it was quite hard to get around that. And people were quite kind of nervous when they were talking about it as well because people were very, very careful not to kind of cross cross the boundaries that they saw as racism. But sometimes when it came to talking about Muslims and Islam, that wasn't necessarily seen as racism or prejudice. Or, or they'd be talking about that and not say that's what yeah. they're talking about. And then you would know because of the places they mentioned they're worried about. So again, the nervousness there. I think um, uh, there's a lot more social distance towards Muslims than there is towards other ethnic and faith minorities in our country. But the discourse reminds me very, very much of the debate about Asian and black people in general in, say, the late 80s or the early 90s. It's in round that place where, you know, where you're sort of, there are people saying, I don't really know what's going on. We're very different, aren't we? There is a big shift in attitudes towards Muslims in that younger people with more education in more diverse areas are just much more confident and older people aren't. But there's a much more sort of mainstream prejudice side of us. He's talked about, you know, passing the dinner table test where people will say things about this one group that they won't say. They'll start telling you positive things about other groups to prove that they're, to prove that they're reasonable and the problem must be with the people they don't like. But I think it's a bit different as well because I think dialogue around Muslims in media and kind of among politicians as well has all kind of conflated global terrorism with integration issues and people kind of can't kind of work out always what leads to one another and see them as kind of one and the same and I think that that's definitely one thing that needs to change is there needs to be a better level of responsibility when we talk about Muslims are we talking about terrorism are we talking about integration and I think it's, it's a very, very different story. And once people start to kind of bound those up and when they start kind of to talk about refugees as Muslims, flows coming from Syria, that's Syria war. And these all things kind of get bound up in the public imagination. So I think there's quite a lot of work to do in challenging those narratives. So beyond just waiting for people to get used to waves of immigration, what, what's, I mean, are there better conversations we could be having? Um, what's, what's, what's the proactive thing yeah. if you both want to pick out? Yeah. I mean, I think the national conversation was kind of proving a point. Like, we can find consensus on migration. We have to talk about it. I think quite often people are quite scared. I've been quite scared in the past, even talking to your family about migration, because it's you don't know what they're going to say and you expect prejudice to come through. And I think what we found was actually it is a lot more complicated and we can only really find consensus by talking. I think quite often people that we spoke to in the middle who don't know where to get their information, don't really trust any information, don't really understand that much about migration, but are a bit worried about it. I think if we fail to engage with those people, the only people who are speaking to them are people who speak to their concerns. So I think opening up the conversation on migration is is really important. And this would make a big practical difference because one of the big shifts in the attitudes, if you go back to sort of 2010 and sort of about two thirds of people saying we don't really think we're allowed to talk about it. And people don't say that anymore because it would be slightly crazy when you've had this referendum. And so now it might be that the liberal side of the debate says we've talked about it so much. It's incredibly dangerous. When can we stop? If you could just get over that instinct to say, when can we stop to say, OK, well, let's let's talk about it. But what should we do now? And that in itself is uh, instead of am I allowed to talk or not? What should you do? It's complicated. 
motivated. Well, I like skills. I like students. You know, there's some pragmatic things. There are some challenges. Let's talk about that. That's you get some confidence. The government has not had that confidence um, since the referendum. It sometimes feels like this will be the very, very last issue we actually talk about. We'll talk about the Northern Irish border. We'll talk about tariffs. We'll all pretend to know about trade rules. And suddenly we're still not having a conversation about this thing. And if you actually got out and did it, you could unlock this pragmatism. So we would institutionalise this. We would have a day that looked like the budget with the Home Secretary, where you say this happened last year, uh, here are our thoughts for next year, here are our funding allocations, here are our refugee policies. And in the run-up to that, you know, you could go in Doncaster and in different regions and people will hear about pressures on housing, they'll hear that the NHS Trust wants something and they'll feel torn. And that would be a really good bit of politics that people would say there are, there are pressures, there are gains, how are we going to strike these balances? That's a conversation that most people want to have but they don't think they'll get and they, you know, they don't hear it in the newspapers, they're certainly not going to find it online. But I think as well the tone of the debate needs to change. Like People are always going to move, that's kind of what it is and migration needs to be talked about in terms of people. I think the more you talk about numbers the more distrust you build. If you, ha- if you kind of make promises that you can't deliver on, public trust mistrust increases. So I think people need to be quite careful in the way they talk about it. By a way of being careful, I mean people need to be quite honest and quite open. And you've got 47 recommendations in your report, and people can go online and, and look at it. I won't read out all 47, but some things strike me. I mean, what, one is about preventing labour market exploitation of people who are coming here because and i just i talked about this when i was leader i think it is a bit that is a big issue because i just know locally people then think it's going to undercut wages and it's unscrupulous employers who are doing it you also talk about um uh, sort of refugees the attitudes towards refugees so so compassion towards refugees managing local impacts which can be an issue but but also integration mm. i mean do you pick out which of those you want to say something Uh, Think about about integration. We now all know we're a more anxious, divided, polarised society than we want to be, and that's a shared experience. And and we've you know we've done not too badly. We should keep it balanced. You know, I think the glass could be half full in terms of the last forty or fifty years in this country in terms of race, immigration, how we've got on. But we've. However, wherever we've muddled through to, we've never really got up and decided to do anything about it. You know, there hasn't, there never been a... So like proactively. Proactively, what is it that does integration? People yeah. have a really common sense, sense that you can speak the language, it's really important. That if you mix and have contact in schools and have opportunity, that's great. And, you know, depending on your experience of work, you'll get on or not with the people you work with. There are things that make integration work and why are our affluent cities feeling quite confident about this and our university towns feeling... And there, and there are things that make people feel that doesn't work for them but we've never really invested or had a policy in what promotes contact with people who are different and how do you do that in a way that works how do we use all of the things we've got schools health services and so on to bring more of that about we've never had an integration strategy and whatever we decide on brexit that would be very popular that people would like to see more action more connection to bridge some of those divides i mean i think integration is really important but i think with that and with a lot of the other recommendations we're not just talking about immigration and we're not just talking about my when we talk about integration we're talking about whole communities we're talking about everyone wherever they come from and how we can live better together and the same when we talk about kind of the impacts on local areas we're not just talking about the impacts of a large group of polish migrants moving into a community that hasn't seen much diversity we're talking about anyone who moves domestically to a place that doesn't necessarily have the infrastructure so i think a lot of the recommendations that we make are not just about migrants and it's it's much more about how we all live together as people a bit better now, can I ask you a sort of um, a tricky question, which is um, we don't know the outcome from Brexit. We don't, we're not sure we are going to be Brexiting or when. Um, freedom of movement was a big issue, as Sundar said at the start, in the referendum campaign. It's possible that if we go for one form of Brexit like Norway, freedom of movement with some emergent, an emergency, so-called emergency break, which is itself disputed, might carry on. If we stay in the European Union, you know, we'll be carry on. What's your feeling about having, you know, as two people who think a lot about these questions, what's your feeling about how material is that to, to the debate? Or is that not so much the issue anymore? Numbers have come down. What, what, what's your thoughts? I think people are concerned about... I mean, we talk about kind of people being balanced, but the balance is weighted a bit differently um, in every place. And I think there are still concerns about free movement. A lot of that is to do with the way that it's being communicated. I think the term free movement 
kind of insinuates that there aren't any controls at all, um, which isn't quite true, and most people don't know that. Um, I think what was kind of critical to this and what was critical to when people talked about EU migration is that what they wanted to see was contribution and they wanted to see people as part of their communities. And the majority of EU migrants in the UK are exactly that. So I And think, indeed, they're much less likely to be on benefits than UK citizens, all of yeah. that, when you look at the numbers. I know that it's not just about saying the facts, but... But at the same time, people do want to see some level of control. People want to see that that is the case. So I think... It's not necessarily kind of bringing in completely huge changes to the immigration system that that completely reduce the numbers of EU migrants. Um, but it is about kind of ensuring that there is some level of contribution. I think I think we couldn't tell who the Remainers and Leavers were when we were having most of the conversation until we got to the question of Brexit and what should the system be. Right. And then and then people told you who they were annoyed with. And then and that was the one thing on which there wasn't then a consensus that some people so some people wanted it. We, we really wanted to defend it as a great thing. We, we should have, movement. It wasn't that they love it as a great thing, but we, you know if we're staying in, we'll you know we'll live with it, or you know obviously things should change. That that was still polarised. So if you're in a position either in a referendum or in a Norway option where you're going to now recommend keeping freedom of movement, it's less change than people expected. It's less change than they wanted. While attitudes have warmed up and a future remain or return campaign one day should not go into a referendum saying we won't talk about at all about the thing that people are really worried about. We'll just change the subject. And that really, I think, stokes up that sense of how are they going to handle it for the next 10 years if they can't even discuss it on the television. Talk about it. Defend what you'll have to defend because it's part of a package you're offering people. But in being aware that it's less change than a lot of people wanted, and this is a big question about how do graduates talk to people who didn't go to university, as well. I think be clear about that, be honest about that, and then talk about what it is you can change. And if you don't triple, quadruple your level of engagement in local impacts, in integration, what knowing now what we know about what happened after 2004 should we have done that we didn't do? I'd much rather make a positive offer about what happens where you live than to pretend that if we went back to another renegotiation in Europe, there'd be a treaty change that would give you new rules that they've got and it, in Belgium that people would have no idea what you're talking about. And it is worth saying, I was about to talk about Belgium, uh, <laughs> it is worth saying, isn't it, that you ca- there are rules that you could put in place even within the rules on freedom movement that weren't in place in the UK that if you don't get a job here after three months you can't stay and so on I think I think I think it's oversold, and I just think I just think you another, oversold, right. another sense of sort of the British right. Prime Minister. If you go back and last last time, sure. I, this is part of the package of being in that. Therefore, live with it, make it work well, welcome people who contribute, and work really, really hard on making it work. And if you don't want that, actually, yes, you've got to leave the European Union, and then you can't have all of the nice economic things you like in the same way either. But that's the, the trade off. Being gonna, honest about the trade off, we're going to debate that. But instead of jumping to the trade off debate, which is then to say, actually, this does matter but something else matters more. And what the banks and businesses want is going to be Trump's. Just to say, actually, what I can offer you is, you know, this kind of voice, this kind of investment, that we will not do what you saw us doing, which is not worrying about changes that were good for the economy and how they affected where you live. And if you can come with that, come with me. And if you can't vote for the other guy... There'll be people listening to this, and we've touched on it a little bit with talking about how angry everybody seems on the internet, but there were people who are regular listeners to this podcast who in the wake of the Brexit referendum, you know, heard about the spike in hate crime and, and they will struggle to believe that attitudes have really changed. What do you say to those people? I mean, there there is a lot of prejudice out there, definitely, and there was a spike in hate crime, but I think we quite often forget that the pe- those people with those views who would enact violence, especially, is an incredibly small proportion of the population, and I think... If we want to change the migration debate, if we want to have a more open kind of conversation on immigration, we need to start talking to people who don't necessarily agree with us. Um, Sometimes those are difficult conversations, but we need to learn how to listen as well. You can't kind of spew facts at people, tell them that they're wrong, start off kind of believing that they're going to be prejudiced to start with. Um, I think we need to be a bit more gentle in the way that we talk about some of these things. You have to understand the emotion behind that liberal disbelief and that sense of loss and there's also a sort of tactical thought that people have they're thinking Nigel Farage and Donald Trump didn't do very badly by shouting maybe we should shout back louder and part of the positive attitude shift is liberals deciding to shout back louder but you've then got a debate of if everyone increases the heat 
does our side win those debates? And that might be a great thing to do on climate change, but actually on migration and race relations, it, if you win a really polarised debate, that might have lost the thing that you're doing. It is, it is counterintuitive to people because they're spending a lot of time on the internet and if they spent more time with their friends and family who have a slightly different view and looked for a bit of common ground there they'd they'd be having more of the conversation that you're probably having at the school gates around Britain. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy where I I am appointed uh, um, supreme benign but very hands-off leader. Uh, If if I was to make you uh, joint ministers for immigration what's the first thing you do on day one? I think for me it'd be changing the tone of the debate. I think I think what we've shown, taking away some of the fear, um, I think not kind of setting these big targets or big numbers or whatever, but actually talking about it as something that happens and a part of life. And I think some kind of honesty around that as well. And I think it's not just immigration. I think what I'd want to do is work with your other departments. Um, I'd want to work with housing. I'd want to work with hospitals. I'd want to kind of get involved with those things as well, because I think it's not just about kind of what happens in terms of controlling immigration or it's about kind of everything else as well. It's very important not to think about immigration, race relations and integration as this special, fragile, especially toxic, especially dangerous. We've all got to really agree on that because if we don't, our society will fall apart. Maybe we could just disagree normally about immigration policy like we would about tax rates or spending. And therefore, it's not that everyone has to agree. It's that actually you can have a democratic argument and conversation about a bit more a bit less more spending and that that's that's fine and I don't have to convert sort of everybody on the internet to my view in order to say actually let's let's make this so a normal immigration debate would would not be as scared of it as an issue all right Rosie Sunder thank you for coming on and being bearers of good news so what do you think well it's good news isn't it I mean how often do you hear something like that which is counterintuitive it's it's as we said at the beginning of the conversation if you spend a lot of time on social media you think it's getting worse but the public attitudes are much more reasonable and measured and it's also encouraged me i think to be sort of less scared about broaching the subject with people i think we should say this doesn't sort of isn't meant to minimize hate crime wherever it exists and so on but I thought it was really interesting talking to Sundar and Rosie about how, you know, how, and it's sort of my experience. It's like people are much more reasonable than you'd think of watching Twitter or, you know, going by the sort of extremes that are sometimes represented either on social media or actually, to be honest, sometimes on the media. Yeah. We're all encouraged to go into our little camps of what we believe and then you think the other people are the bad guys and they're the crazy ones and they've got these terrible uh, opinions. But actually, when you talk to people, as this has come up time and time again in episodes, people are sort of reasonable. And it is a bit like the sortition thing as well, isn't it? Which is deliberation, talking about it is much better than not talking about it. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do share your thoughts with us on this week's episode, or if you've got ideas for future episodes, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast. We're on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Also, Ed has specifically asked me to remind you to review and rate us on iTunes because it's good for Ed's self-esteem to see us rise up the iTunes chart, and it's good for other people to find the podcast. Uh, A message here from Stanley Palmer about reasons to be beside the seaside last week's episode. He says, this episode uh, hit especially close to home as I grew up and currently live in Portsmouth, with my family having connections with coastal towns such as Weymouth, going back generations. Although the local culture, beauty of our coastlines and native fauna and flora bring a really individual feel to the area, our high population density and a Above national average poverty are having a huge effect on people here. A lot of the solutions suggested in this episode would be a real benefit to our coastal areas in a tangible way. I have two possible suggestions, though. Make the value of offshore wind projects fund the areas they are part of in a similar way to Norway's oil fund. That is good. Uh, So money from renewables goes directly into community initiatives. And start funding the restarting of shipyards on the condition that they focus on sustainable ships as a low impact alternative to flying, possibly hybrids of traditional sails and solar powered propellers. So it's interesting. We've idea, got such a sophisticated yeah. audience. Uh, Stan also says uh, consider this as an invitation for both of you to come and spend a day in Portsmouth seeing the sights and taking in the sea air. I would be happy to show you around. Great. Uh, next is Benjamin Chadwick. Uh, He says, hi, I just listened to your fascinating episode on coastal communities. I grew up in East Dorset in a town with some of the struggles you mentioned, but I'm emailing you about kissing. I can categorically say (laughs) that men in France can use the two form together long before they can kiss. Uh I work in a French startup and use two with my boss, but we are nowhere near kissing levels of friendship. Also, I've noticed the regional variation in the number of kisses in France. Here in Paris, it tends to be two, but further south, it can be three or even four. This is good. I still advocate... Two, two three or four. I advocate none. No kissing. Really? No, I, I'm done with handshaking. Why do we have to be touching each other? I, I, I think, uh, you know, have a respectful distance from each other at all times. Uh, this comes from Helen Muir, and uh, we also had a message from Caroline Blaze on the same subject. Uh, Helen says, Dear Ed and Jeff, I listened to your show, Honey, I Shrunk the Tech Giants, and your guest comedian Finn Taylor mentioned Stockport as being the kind of place that would vote leave in Brexit based on his perception of the local retail sector. Stockport, in fact... Voted remain 52.3%. As someone born and brought up in Stockport, but now living further south, I often encounter such misconceptions regarding northern towns. That was me slapping our wrists. Yeah, consider, consider our wrists slapped on behalf of 52.3% yeah, of Stockfordians. Apo- we should apologise, Please, can you set the record straight yeah. on a forthcoming show? Definitely. Well, I grew up with a Stockport postcode. I was, I was SK11 in Macclesfield. Well, there's also, even less excuse for getting li- it wrong. I, I lived in Stockport, lived in Heaton Moor for a long time. I also... The well, shop- I don't think... Like- like sort of displaying your your credentials, credentials like makes the mistake better. It doesn't. No, it's a yeah. terrible mistake. And you right. know, if anything, I'm saying I feel more oh, guilty well, as nice a former of resident of Stockport, and also in the shopping centre mention, which I believe will be Merseyway Shopping Precinct. I once had a Christmas job for four, four Saturdays in the run up to Christmas, uh, dressing up as Mr. Blobby and handing out balloons to, to children. <laughs> I'd, I'd consider digging out the suit again if uh, there are any children's parties opp- opportunities. Maybe at one of our upcoming live shows. Definitely, yeah. it's a promise. Right. Um, next is from Lee Dickinson, subject line, Beet Burgers. Dear Ed and Jeff, my reason to be cheerful this week is Beet Burgers. My partner and I used to eat meat with every main meal, but a couple of years now, for a couple of years now, I've tried to make at least some of our meals meat-free. And since episode 34, reasons to be vegan... I've been inspired to do more. We have neither the will nor the energy to go full on vegan, but I was persuaded by the notion of eating less but better meat. I like to cook and I much prefer my ingredients to have been grown in a field rather than created by some boffins in a lab. 
So I don't enjoy cooking pretend meats like corn, but I do use loads of beans, pulses, chickpeas, etc. Beet burgers are my favourite new discovery, having tried them on Levensview Market in Manchester, where a hipster was charging an arm and leg for them. The ones in the chat's photo are homemade, uh, but Aldi do some nice ones containing only ingredients with recognisable names. The colour isn't too dissimilar to a beef burger, a beef burger, and they have a sort of burgerish texture. They're better than any chickpea or bean burger I've ever tried, and even my boyfriend, who used to be adamant that we should have meaty dinners every day, is happy to swap beef burger swap beef burgers for their beaty cousins. Hope you give them a go. Wow, we could have a beet burger and beatboxing evening using I, your newfound skills. Very good. P.S. I recently finished catching up on the back catalogue of the podcast having started shortly before Christmas. If you could now triple or even quadruple your output, it would be much appreciated. Well, funny you should say that. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here to pitch us some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Athena Kablangu. Hello. 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 Uh, we we just found out before we switched on the microphones on that Athena and I have something in common. We are both sufferers of prosopagnosia. We are, yeah. I'm not going to say it because I can't say it. Prosopagnosia. But we suffer from it and I'm glad to have met and let's start a support group. Definitely, so. <laughs> yeah, because Ed, Ed, uh, Ed mocks me and says that I'm making this up. What? No. You do. <laughs> that is what you always say not, every time. Not on, not on camera, I don't. <laughs> you don't acknowledge that it is a condition. You just doubt that I have it. I just sort of think that you seem to have lots of conditions, though. I just sort of says you. I know that's true, actually. <laughs> I definitely have it. And I no, but I, I respect your prosopagnosia. So, do you do you find? I mean, is it because it makes me like scared of even going out if I bump into somebody and then I don't recognise them and they'll think I'm rude. I've got a strategy. It's better for people to think you're weird than rude. So just always pretend you know them. That, that is definitely so true. That is a politician you. strategy. Is that, I should have been a politician then. Yeah, I'm that's like, definitely. And, but also, like, obviously, that means you won't remember someone's name. But then, just go as long as possible without having to remember their name. Um, and then, when it gets awkward, leave. Look at your phone. Or oh, just got just got text. Um, but I, if I've met you like one or two times and had a very meaningful conversation, we're good. Really? So, mm. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, that's a good test, Steve. When you see Jeff next, <laughs> see if this is a meaningful <laughs> yeah. conversation or not. Meets the bar of meaningful. <laughs> uh, so you brought some ideas with you, Athena. What's what's the first one? Oh, the first one is um, this is a really uh, really good one. I think stupidity should be painful. <laughs> right. So when you're stupid, you get a headache, or you get that feeling you get when you bang your knee against a table. Um, and I think that you're like, oh my god, I was stupid again. It's that how you, it's how you train dogs, isn't it? I, I, don't, I don't have a dog. I'm assuming that's how you train dogs. And how? What's the sort of? How do you kind of make the judgment? Oh, I honestly believe yeah. there's a universal truth, truth to stupidity. So you should get like that an intense be, headache or a bit of a sort of a migraine, or when you like when you step on a plug, that right. kind of pain, or you know when you get like when you eat some bad food. Jeff knows yeah. all about that. Yeah, yeah. I just imagine, imagine, imagine Parliament if stupidity was painful right now. Because you know, then, then you you wouldn't be stu- it train you over a period of time not to be stupid. Exactly, because just telling people that they're doing something silly isn't working, right? But if they had an internal pain, they wouldn't want it to be external because that there'd be legal implications. But if there was like, a, if we could change people's DNA in some way for it to be an automatic okay. thing, genetic modification. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that kind of thing has historically been. Problematic, but um, but this should be for good. Okay, this should be for good, not evil. That's what I always say. All right, we'll have that. Athena, what's your next one? That's an excellent question. Uh, What was the next one? Oh, I'd like to decolonize people's art collections, and when I say art, I mean books, music, films, TV shows they watch. Um, because I think at the moment, I'll give you a story, a very quick story. A friend of mine uh, worked in Brussels. Um, and she worked. She she was like in her late twenties when she went to Brussels, and she ended up working with someone in the same role as her, who was in her, who was in her early twenties. She was in Ireland. My friend is uh, black, Ghanaian, British born, uh, and this other girl was Irish, white. Anyway, they're having a conversation about Toni Morrison, and this girl from Ireland had never heard of Toni Morrison, who I think is like a wonderful writer. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know what? If you're young and in your early twenties, and you find yourself working in Europe, you know, and you're working alongside alongside someone who's not older than you, you're probably you're probably pretty precocious and smart. So I didn't judge her for that. Okay. This girl goes away, finds out who Toni Morrison is, goes back to my friend and says, you didn't tell me she was black. No wonder I hadn't have heard of her. Right? Now, this is crazy, right? But actually, I think this is quite what popular. Does that, why did it she means, say that? What did means, that mean, though? It means, in her head, black meant niche. 
You know, this is a Pulitzer <gasps> Prize winner. Oh, you know, she's no. had movies. Oprah makes movies of her books. Steven Spielberg, um, not Steven Spielberg. Um, I think it was just Oprah. Anyway, she had movies. I think of Alice Walker. But anyway, what I'm saying is, I think this is quite prevalent. This yeah. idea because people unconsciously just consume stuff that is made by people like them and then their worlds don't get bigger so they find it then hard to maybe empathize i'll sign up to the decolonization yeah, service yeah, definitely. And, and it's not like a it's not okay it's not a bad thing Are you gonna offer it to people yeah yeah and it's not to be negative it's to say look I've got, i know all these things because i'm privileged enough to have a really diverse background i'm Ghanaian. i'm guyanese i've got indian heritage i've grown up in a very diverse i, I definitely want the i want the full <laughs> i want the full service yeah it's brilliant um and and it's free it's it's fr- well actually if it's a good idea I'm actually like yeah exactly I'm sort of thinking <laughs> actually, it might be too good an idea I'm like oh I should probably get investment get go to a VC company um, but I do it free because I'm privileged enough to have had to decolonize my my art collection otherwise I wouldn't be able to function in the world because I went through school reading uh, Shakespeare so what's top and, of your list then oh well, I, we said Tony Morrison yeah. so I do Tony Morrison I would say Malcolm X because we don't study him what we get about him is received wisdom which is always uh, misleading. Because Malcolm X was someone who changed his views over the decades. Well, it sort of praised for Martin Luther King and sort of Malcolm X being the sort of not exactly the, the bad, bad guy. guy. Well, just the, the kind of guy he was, the kind of guy who, well, the the, the stereotype is Malcolm X was uh, was for uh, violent resistance. Yeah. And then, okay, it's non-violent. But Malcolm X wasn't for violent resistance. He was about defence, uh, which is an important point. But also what's important is he changed his mind over over time. To the point where by the by the time, uh, to the end of his life, towards the end of his life, he his politics and Martin Luther King's politics were almost uh, in parallel to each other. Uh, so things like that, where people have received wisdom or where people don't know about things, I'd love to introduce people. I'd love to introduce people to Indian history because we talk about kind of history starting from like Greece, but we've got like thousands of years of literature and science that's come from the Middle East and from China and from India. And it's like, well, why why don't we know about that? Why are we, why are we starting what we understand about civilization from like, you know, do you think we could sign up Boris Johnson for this service? No, he, he, you'd have to, you'd have to, you'd have to look Clockwork Orange style for him. Do you know what I mean? You'd have to chain him to a chair. I don't think he'd be up for it voluntarily. Um, I, I mean, th- I think he'd be a good candidate. But t- for Boris, the funny thing is, he knows all this already. He just doesn't mm, care. Mm. I think you'd be telling him what he already knows. He Maybe. just doesn't care. All right, we're yeah. into it. Get Definitely, it, get it while it's still free. Uh, Definitely, yeah. before Athena gets the venture yeah, capitalists exactly. <laughs> yeah. involved. Uh, what else you got, Athena? This is a really important one for me. If you use public transport that is busy, okay, and you walk onto a busy train or a busy bus, and the aisle is empty, and you don't walk down the aisle. Okay, you need to be charged for leaving your house that day. Scum of the earth, those people. You need to be charged. I'll let you get to work, but it's got to cost you ten pounds. So basically, this is you know people don't move into the train; they all hang around but by the door, and then you can't get on. You can't get on. Move down the aisle. I believe we should have a congestion charge for people who don't <laughs> walk down the aisle. I don't want to get vi- a lot of people be like, hey, you know, you said they were scum. They're not scum. They just got money. They don't scum. need. You know, I did have to shout the other day. Actually, <laughs> did can you, you really? move? Can you I can bang- you move in, please? I bang on the windows. I, I just get moved. I'm trying to get to work. I'm trying to get pro- I think it might be, not be a great look for me to do that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, people might be thinking I was venting my frustrations. <laughs> people wouldn't blame uh, you. Uh, like, fair enough. Yeah, but it's a problem, isn't it? But that's good that you get into it because I, I, I will go as far as a disapproving look. I'll I confess, it. maybe to full disclosure, I'm probably a bit of a sort of Miller. Oh. A, a sort of, oh, a door hanger. Mm, He's a door hanger. Well, no. uh, well not not... Not not sort of total block, not full full court block. Would there be a sliding scale of of, of penalty? Because you're talking no, about fees. No, ten here. pounds goes Flat, up goes up every on year on the spot fine. Yeah. So for somebody like Ed, who isn't the worst offender, it would still be ten pounds. If you do it once, that makes you the worst offender on that day. So I'm sorry. You... I started off as like the sort of you know angel in this conversation. Yeah, I've now you... ended up feeling like the sort of guilty party. The thing but is, there, there was a confession. That's yeah, why it was only say... a sort of. I mean, I think I was probably yeah, um, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> if, I'll say this: if you are somebody who's going to be a door hanger, own it. Okay, yeah. right. you're on definitely. You got one more, Athena. One more. I think this is the best idea I've ever had. What I think people should do, right, is when they have elections, manifestos shouldn't be branded with uh, party logos. So you should just see the manifesto commitments, but you don't know which party they're for. So you're just voting for what they're doing, not who they are. Oh, that's quite interesting because sometimes yeah. now you can it's like do... the voice, basically. Just like the voice, yeah. right? And I'll tell you what's inspired this. For... That might show you, mate. It's <laughs> popular culture. I, I didn't doubt you at all yeah. on that. Um 
I was doing some research for my last Edinburgh show. So I thought, let me read UKIP's manifesto, right? And then the UKIP manifesto, they wanted to get rid of the House of Lords. And I was like, this is a great idea. <laughs> it's really, if they just, if they put it on the bus, <laughs> I might have been convinced. And I thought, and they, they had one other idea, which I have since forgotten. And I thought there were two things. There were two bullet points in, they had like a thousand bullet points. Yeah. But out of the thousand, there were quite two. Quite a lot of them quite bad. Yeah, they're quite a lot of them quite bad. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, that's probably the case for a lot of us that we think this is where we this is where this is the hill we choose to die on or this is the party we choose to support mindlessly but we don't actually who reads manifestos I know you do yeah job. he writes them yeah, yeah. occasionally go, yeah. But occasionally I, not successfully but uh, yeah but they do this you can do online tests you can I'm not like, sure yeah. they'll have like four different policies and yeah. you pick which one you like the uh, best and it'll do different policy is areas is that good do you think though? Why do, well let me turn that around why do you think that's bad I saw somebody the other day saying they voted green in 2015 because they went to one of those <laughs> okay, no, we, just that election uh, you know, that's, and, I, and I thought mm, because really do you know what I mean <laughs> and I thought well I don't like those things <laughs> Um, but every other election, fine. Um, now, I um, I think that it would be. Re- I think it would open people's minds. What you do is at the end of this process, people end up voting for like. I'm I'm assuming the ballot box is just like a list of manifesto commitments, right? And you tick the ones you like, and the most commitments that get. What am I trying to say? The party that has the most oh, people commitments gets now, into power. This is interesting. Like multiple choice. So it's like some kind of proportional representation by policy, not yes. by party. What do you think of that? Then I, now I, that is a radical idea. Yeah. So what, you'd vote for sort of 30 out of 50, poli- 50 policies? Yeah, I mean, voting would take a lot longer. you probably need to take a sandwich well, and then with the top you. ones. Yeah. And the top ones. And whichever party has the most policy uh, points that people like gets in. It seems a bit risky. Yeah, but, you know... Yeah, because the current system's so yeah. great. <laughs> it's, what, what, what's, what, what, it's quite close to, to referee. It's sort of... The R word a bit. Well, it? it is, it is. It's about 100 referendums in one one day. And, and the ne- one yeah. that we've had has been pretty successful, so it's something to build on. Um, what, do you know? Do you know how when you make pancakes, the first pancake's really rubbish. <laughs> That's it's the first pancake. Like. So the Brexit referendum is the first it's pancake. It's the first pancake, right? I think that is. Yeah. Pro- I mean, it definitely pancake. bears some resemblance to the first pancakes it's and a- some subsequent pancakes that I would make. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very good at making pancakes, uh, as happens. And the first right. one's always terrible. Mm. So I know when my idea is implemented. And I'm assuming this is to implement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's Highly what I was, serious, that's what yes. I was told. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to this massive voting sheet, which takes everybody half an hour to tick. And people probably just tick anything. It's a bit Switzerland, yeah. I think. Right, right, yeah, right. And it's a bit like Switzerland. And they, I've, they're pretty yeah. happy. And they like make nice they clocks. Nice. Yeah, Federer. Good chocolate. Yeah, I mean, Federer means everything. Yeah, East Swiss. Swiss. Yeah, well, I don't know what the connection is, but I like tennis. But there we go. I mean, I mean, there's some very solid reasons here: <laughs> clocks, tennis, and what was the other one? You said nice chocolate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, there we go. Uh, Athena, if people want to come and see you, um, they can go on my website, uh, which is myname.co.uk. No, as in Athena Cabrenu, not. My name. I always say, if you can't find me um, without me spelling my name, you won't get my jokes. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great way of filtering your audience. Yeah. So yeah, Athena Kablenu, um Put that name into Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the internet, and you'll find me. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So you're off to Salford. I am, yes. I'm going to be on BBC Radio 6 Music. Swiss Army Knife. That's me. Deployed And, and possibly on 5 Live this week. I'm going to be cropping up all over the place. So if you fancy... Ubiquitous. That's me. If you fancy a trip to Salford, I can't promise you naked buttocks. I could ring in. Yeah, or you could come and see me. You know, it gets, it gets lonely in the, uh, the travel tavern in Salford. With any luck, you'll be the guest of the day. Yes, yeah, when, when I was staying in that travel tavern recently, I, I was made guest of the day. I still haven't used my voucher for a free hot or cold beverage. Wow. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll splash out this week. to look forward to, isn't Yeah. It? I'd like to thank our guests, Sunder Katwala and Rosie Carter. And thanks to Athena Kablenu for sharing her ideas. Emma Caution produces our podcast this week, uh, assisted by Sammy Bruff. As Emma, Emma is globe trotting, uh, Joel Pierce is our researcher with backup from Joe Kenyon. James Deacon made our eye dead, said seed composed the music and the artwork. 
Emily Power. She is Emily Power. Well, you're off for another fun week in the comments. Yes. Yeah? Yes. I'm going to take some Windoline for you, with you, in case there's a repeat yes, incident. Definitely. Maybe, maybe you get time to kind of revisit your dressing up in, in a local shopping centre. <laughs> Yeah, he, he's been eyes to the right. He's been nose to the left. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.